Hi, I'm Elise Lunen, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. Today's guest is Glennon Doyle. Before we get to our conversation, I want to thank our friends at Eileen Fisher, who helped make today's episode possible. A major upshot of renovating my closet last year was cleaning up my wardrobe. I'd much rather buy fewer things and invest in well-made pieces that are simple and timeless. This makes it a lot easier to decide what to wear in the morning and get out the door. Eileen Fisher designs responsible, high-quality clothing, and they're known for designing pieces that can be worn together season after season. Their process is circular by design. They take back what they make to create a new generation of clothing. To shop their new spring collection, head to EileenFisher.com. Right now, you can enter code GOOP25 at checkout to receive $25 off when you spend $100 or more. That's EileenFisher.com and use code GOOP25. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Glennon Doyle is a New York Times bestselling author and the founder and president of Together Rising, an all-women-led nonprofit organization that has delivered millions and millions of dollars of aid to people all around the world. Her newest book, Untamed, comes out on March 10th. I practically inhaled this book, and I cannot recommend it enough. Today, Glennon and I are talking about what it means to stop abandoning ourselves Glennon believes that when we sacrifice our own happiness in pursuit of pleasing others, we often lose ourselves in the process. As women, it's practically baked into our system to be quiet, to be small, and to never dare to break the status quo. Glennon fiercely believes in breaking past this mindset, and she is encouraging women everywhere to do the same. Part of this is realizing we don't always have to be good, that we are allowed to take care of ourselves first, and that we can dare to be brave enough to live a life that is untamed. It is proven that the happier, the more certain, the more bold, the more joyful, the more successful a man becomes, Mm -hmm. the more people like and trust him. And the more bold and joyful and outspoken and successful and happy a woman becomes, the less people like her. I'll let Glennon Doyle take it from here. I read your book. I I devoured your book. Mm. When I was a child, I used to read while walking on the sidewalk. And I. (laughs) this was one of those books where I brought it to the grocery store checkout line, 
which mm. is not a good thing to do with one of your books because people then get really excited that oh, your book do? is out. That's fun. And um, and then you have to tell them that it's an advanced copy and you feel like a real asshole depriving them of their pleasure. Oh, but it's so beautiful. I found myself tabbing almost every page, which then is sort of counterproductive. But congratulations. Thank you. It's so exciting for me to hear that because this is one of the first interviews I've done about it. So I just am thrilled to hear that you liked it. Yeah, no, I thought it was moving, beautiful, resonant. Not only did I write so much down, but then I went back and bolded things. And it seems at its core, I mean, it's about so many things, including your relationship with Abby, but... It seems to be this line, which I'm going to read to you. When a woman finally learns that pleasing the world is impossible, she becomes free to learn how to please herself. And it usually takes for some reason, although I do see it happening earlier for women now. Yeah. But it's taken most of my friends 40 years to figure that out. Yeah. And that's why the 40s are so freaking amazing. Yeah. Gwyneth always says, like, you get an upgrade when you turn 40. Mm. And she's expecting one when she turns 50 as well. But that, and I just turned 40. And is it that, is it that, is it that that's the point that you're like, I don't give a fuck? Or is it that you finally see yourself in your parents and you start to shed that? No, I mean, for me, it was that I tried everything else first. Right. Every <laughs> right. substance. I wish. I wish <laughs> that it was. No, I, I really did. I tried to be, you know, a good this and a good that and a good this and a good that and I strived so much to follow the world's rules about you know women being perfect and quiet and small mm-hmm. I did all that maybe miserable and sick mm-hmm. and then I was a perfect mother and a good wife and then I found out that my husband was cheating on me my whole, my whole marriage so so that didn't work you know being a good wife wasn't enough to keep my marriage together and then, you know, one day I was talking to my friend Liz and she said, I quote, quoted Steinbeck to her. I said, you know, now that we're done being perfect, we can be good. And she said, I'm so effing sick of being good. How about now that we're done being good, we can be free? Mm. And that's what I think the 40s are. It's figuring out that all of the shoulds and the supposed tos, all the things that our culture told us would make us happy mm-hmm. and successful – were really just things that <laughs> were meant to keep us in line and quiet and small and busy and exhausted mm-hmm. so that status quo would stay the same. You know, we chase all these things, all these ideals and expectations, and we think we're going to hit the finish line and feel finally successful and finally free and finally happy. And I passed a lot of finish lines yeah, and just still felt exhausted and unfulfilled. So I think the 40s are when a lot of women just figure the game out, Mm -hmm. right? And we're like, oh, I'm just going to stop striving for those things. Right. I'm going to stop trying to be all of these things I'm supposed to be and just live as who I am. Totally. You know, forget the improvement and just live who I am right now and show up for my people in the world exactly as I am. It was in, I think, one of the chapters when you were discussing your marriage and you're just in sort of searching the Internet and looking to trolls and bots and anonymous bloggers to Mm -hmm. tell you which direction to go in. And then you sort of arrived at the conclusion that you could leave your husband or you could leave yourself. Mm -hmm. And you chose to leave him and to choose yourself, which I thought was so well put. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think 
for so many, whether it's a career or a toxic relationship or as much as possible to leave a problematic childhood behind, that seems to be like there has is there always a moment like in your experience with your friends? Is there sort of like a moment of catharsis or clarity? Well, I mean, I think that women are trained to – and one of my favorite stories when this was crystallized for me is my – I have a son and two daughters until they tell me different. And my son was hanging out in our basement with his friends. And I walked in and said, is anybody hungry? Mm-hmm. Okay. And all the boys, without taking their eyes off the screen, just yelled, yes. Okay. Like that's – they nailed it, right? They just <laughs> – they heard a question. They looked inside their bodies. They found the answer, said it, just crushing it. Okay. The girls did something completely different. So each one of the girls took her eyes off the television and started looking at each other's faces. Mm. Okay. At, they were looking at each other's faces to find out if they inside their own bodies were hungry, right? Mm-hmm. They were looking outside at each other's faces for approval for consensus, for permission, Mm -hmm. right? And in that moment, I figured out, oh, this is what we're trained to do. Boys are trained to look inside, find the answer and say it. Girls are trained to look outside of themselves, right, for permission and consensus and constantly. And so what that does over time, well, that turns a a person like me into a woman who's 40 years old and Googling, Mm -hmm. should I leave my husband who's also a great father? Like this constant looking outside of ourselves for answers instead of stopping, looking inside and trusting what's inside, right? I think, I mean, truly what this whole book about, what Untaming is about, is about that moment when, when uncertainty arises, just stop the outward searching, mm-hmm. right, for what everybody else is going to think, for how I can please them, how I can please my parents, how I can be a good mom, how I can be a, all these things, and instead get still and look inside. Because what happens when we look outside is we abandon ourselves. Mm-hmm. We abandon ourselves over and over and over again. And I think when I hit 40, I realized, oh, I'm, I will abandon other people's expectations of me until the day I die so that I never have to abandon myself again. Mm. And that's living in integrity, right? Yep. The word integrity, it doesn't mean being good or doing the right the right thing. It means integrated, mm-hmm. right? So my outer life and words and actions are integrated with my inner life and words and action. And I think that's the difference to me. When I, when I see women who have abandoned themselves, they, are, they have two different lives. Yeah. Right? They know something. They know what they should be doing. They know who they should be loved by. They know the work they should be doing. They know that we all know. Women always know. Yep. The and knowing. We exactly. know. It's the knowing. Right. When we get out of our beliefs, which are always planted by somebody else, mm-hmm. right? When we get out of the shoulds, out of the supposed tos, out of the fears, and we return to ourselves, when we get quiet and we look inward, we always know what we're supposed to do. Yeah. And, and I think... That becomes a toxic cycle, sort of like hazing or any other institutionalized shittiness, right, where that's that was sort of heaped on us. And so then we heap it on each other. Like the end of the book, I loved this section. And we'll have to talk about what a cheetah is and why it's important. But when you're talking about watching, I don't it was at Tish's soccer game mm-hmm. and seeing this girl strutting mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. in in. And watching her revel in her excellence at the game and how pissed you were. And you could tell that all the moms were pissed. And that 
in that moment, you recognized that conditioning that I think so many women have, which is like, how dare she be full of herself mm-hmm. when we are taught to never be full of ourselves and to live small, to ask for permission, to when someone tells us to stop talking, to shut up. Yeah. I mean, women like my age, we fight for, we're out there constantly saying women are entitled to have a voice. Mm -hmm. Women are entitled to take up space, to show up, to use their voices. And then when when younger women show up and do that, we're like, oh, she's so entitled. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. So full of herself. So full of herself. I mean, this this story came up in the book because somebody raised her hand at a speaking event and said to me, Glennon, I used to relate to you so much, you know, when you were always talking about how hard life was and your pain. And now that you, now you're just different. Like now, ever since Abby, ever since like, you're just different. And I find it harder and harder to relate to you. Mm-hmm. And I said to her, I understand what you're saying. It is, it is proven that the happier, the more certain, the more bold, the more joyful, the more successful a man becomes, mm-hmm. the more people like and trust him. And the more bold and joyful and outspoken and successful and happy a woman becomes, the less people like her. Mm-hmm. And that is because we've been told over and over again that a woman's place is on the margins, quiet, small. And no matter how much we know in our heads that that's not true, we believe it in our gut. Yeah. Because we've been drinking that misogynistic poison forever. Mm-hmm. So when we see a woman who stepped out of line, we want to put her back in her cage. Yeah. Well, and also it, I think it, it, it triggers that, why her? It wasn't me. Mm-hmm. You know, that feeling of sadness that I think so many women carry of all those unfulfilled dreams or feeling like we didn't have permission or opportunity or whatever it is. And so when someone gets it, it's sort of this like – as you said, like, come back in line. Like, mm-hmm. you're only reflecting back to me what I haven't been able to do for myself. Mm-hmm. And I think that brings more more sadness, and then we heap judgment, and it's a terrible cycle. I mean, I certainly, we live it at Goop, you know, mm-hmm. and I think we've seen it. We saw it in the last election. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All the people, oh, I just look at her, and I just, I don't like, like her. her. I can't put my finger on it. Yes. I can put my finger on it. Yeah. It's because you've been pumped with misogyny your entire life. Yeah. And you have that unconscious thing that, that, re- that you know, rises up inside you, and it's a knee-jerk reaction. I don't like her. I don't know why. I don't know why. Yeah. I mean, I hear that, that, that it is... It can be a sadness. It can be an envy. It can be, but well, we've got to fight that. Yeah, I mean, I agree. those that's the worst of us. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, when when we feel bitter, jealous, jealousy and envy. I just, if we could stop suppressing and in those emotions, jealousy and envy. What we do is we turn a je- jealousy and envy into dislike. Mm-hmm. We write it. We can't handle it. We think we're not supposed to have envy. So the second it arises, we change it into anger and dislike for the other woman. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think that we're just missing huge opportunities there. I have come to think of envy as just a red red arrow pointing me at something I was meant to do. Exactly. Right? Like when I was drinking all the time, I, was, I used to be an alcoholic. I've been so many things. <laughs> but when I was drunk all the time, if somebody would hand me a book written by a, be- a, a beautiful book written by a woman, I could not even open it. I would not even look at it because there was some part of me that um, it just reading words, beautiful words written by a woman felt to me like looking directly at the sun, like it hurts so bad. Mm. And I think that's because nothing hurts as bad as seeing somebody else do the thing that we know we were made to do. Mm -hmm. Right? Yes. 
So envy, if we could sit with it a little bit more, if we could, you know, we're just taught to hot potato all of our all of our our hard emotions, but emotions are instructive, right? If we could just be still with that emotion of envy a little bit longer, we would see that oh, that's that's a guide. Yeah. Right? Like instead of I don't like her, I like what she's doing. I want to do what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Right? Her boldness makes me envious. I not that I need to put her down, but I want to be bolder. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I was interviewing Lori Gottlieb, mm, who um, love her. I love her too, therapist who wrote Maybe You Should Talk to mm-hmm. Someone. And she said, you know, one of the great lessons from her practice and talking to so many people is that envy, envy shows us what we want. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And do you think that we can't handle it because women are taught that we are not allowed to want? Yes. Right? It's easier to dislike and dismiss than to admit your want because women are taught from the Day, the day one. Here's the here's the first story I ever learned in my entire life about desire and women. Okay, so there was uh, God, and then there was Adam, and then when it was just the bros, it was all great, right? But then God, Adam got bored, so God made Eve, and then they lived in this perfect garden, and everything was perfect and wonderful. But then Eve went for what she wanted, and then all hell broke loose, and all suffering happened on the earth for the rest of the days. Go with God, little girls. <laughs> Right. I yeah. mean, Christ. And, and in every single other industry, that's what we're told. And every, the message is repeated all again and again that if women go for what they want, they're selfish. Mm-hmm. That's bad. That's dangerous. Your family will suffer. Your children will suffer. The world will suffer. And we're told that in so many ways that we we're ashamed. Yeah. Of desire in every way, of our hunger, of of our ambition. All of that's just different w- words for what we want. And our sexuality. And our sexuality, my God. Yeah. How, how are we shamed out of that from mm-hmm. the beginning? Yeah. You know, sexuality becomes not about desire, not about a woman's desire, but just about being desired. Yeah. And we don't even know what we want. We just know that we're supposed to be wanted. Exactly. And that's where our desire lives. And to go on that and to go on Eve, it's... This passage gave me chills. What women want is good. What women want is fucking beautiful. The blueprints of heaven are firmly planted inside the desires of women. The longing of women should be the entire world's marching orders. What women want is dangerous, but not to women, not to the common good. What women want is a threat to the injustice of the status quo. If women trusted and followed their desire, imbalanced relationships would be equalized, children would be fed. Corrupt governments would topple, wars would end, civilizations would be transformed. Maybe Eve was never meant to be our warning. Maybe she was meant to be our example. Let us own our wanting. Let us eat the apple and let it burn. Let it burn. I love it. I believe it. I mean, it is true. Yeah. I I mean, mean, we are taught to be peacekeepers, man. Yeah. You have to be peacekeepers. Just abandon yourself, abandon yourself, abandon yourself to keep the peace. Yeah. And even religion, which I know you also explore in the book, having been sort of a widely acknowledged Christian and the way, you know, I've become sort of a gospel of Mary junkie mm-hmm. lately. But even the way that that whole like the, the way that the Bible came together and <laughs> its rejection of the feminine and somehow that became... God, right? Right, right. I mean, most of the things we're upset about, we think that these... I have learned that whatever makes me feel like crap Mm -hmm. is a belief that can be traced back to a table where a bunch of men made a decision about what I should believe. We think that... And I'm not just talking about 
the the compilation of the Bible that left out the Mary Magdalene mm-hmm. and, and Timothy and all of the mm-hmm. all of the books that would have taught us that God was inside of us and not that there was no hierarchy. I'm not talk, just talking about a religion. I'm talking about the beauty industry. I'm talking about the the diet culture. I'm talking about rape culture. I'm talking about the justice system. I'm talking about every single area where women feel lacking, wanting, or unsafe. Mm-hmm. It all can be traced back. We think these beliefs are written in the stars, and they were all, most of them were written by highly motivated men. Yeah. Right? Who know how to capitalize on the fear and oppression of women. Right? I mean, we think all the time about my I have I'm out of I'm out of addictions. All right. I keep I keep having to get sober from freaking everything and it's exhausting and terrible in many ways. I mean it's great. I'm vertical, coherent. <laughs> <laughs> out of jail, all of those things. But like on an escapism level, it's yeah. not easy to just have to be human all of the time. Yeah. You know, and so one of my things that I still, one of my easy buttons, I have a list on my office wall of easy buttons and reset buttons. Mm. Okay. So the easy buttons are the things that I use. I guess people could call them unhealthy. They're the things that take me away from myself, that that I guess help me abandon myself, right? Mm -hmm. So these things would be booze or binging, all the things I've been trying to get away from, snark, apathy, hate, all the things. And then I have my reset buttons, and these are the things that bring me back to myself. When I'm feeling out of sorts, which happens 10 times a day, when I'm feeling depressed, when I'm feeling upset, I can just go to my reset buttons. And the funny thing is they're all very little things. Mm -hmm. They're like, you know, when I think that my life is terrible and that I need like a new house and a new religion and a new family and I really just need like a glass of water. <laughs> right? right. Like that's almost always the answer. Like if a glass of water doesn't work, then it's like a bath. Mm-hmm. And if the bath doesn't work, then I have to like sweat. And if the sweat <laughs> doesn't work, then I have to like actually go to the Gulf of Mexico. I live close to it. Like some sort of water situation. It just has to get bigger and bigger and bigger. But one of my things on the easy buttons is over-consuming. I just am convinced constantly that if I feel bad, if I just have this, like, new pair of jeans or these shoes, that my life will be better and I will be complete. And that also is just a made-up thing, right? right? By a bunch of people who sit around in a table and are like, how can we make women feel like crap? Because women who feel like crap, women who feel like less than will will want to consume more. Mm -hmm. Right? And it's an amazing way to run an economy. Right. Right? And <laughs> Not women. a good way to run a life because you right. can never get enough of what you don't need. Yeah, I think that I really do. I hope that this book really helps us as women, but also as people, because men are caged by all this crap just as much, just in a different way. Yeah. Um, some moving scene with your son, with his friends, when you say, I don't know if Chase was the one who was being vulnerable in that moment, mm-hmm. but where you essentially said, like, he was he was bold enough brave enough to share now you be brave enough to listen yeah yeah because sweet boys i mean you know i've i've railed i've worked so hard to raise my little girls as raging feminists and they Mm -hmm. are they're amazing (laughs) they're so pissed (laughs) i mean i think in a culture like ours little girls either get sick or pissed so i'm trying to raise pissed girls but, you know, it wasn't until like three years ago where I was like, oh, shit, I'm raising a boy, too. Like what? Like I've been whispering in my daughter's ears, you know, you can be bold and brave and and certain and 
still be a girl, but I haven't been telling my son, like, you can be vulnerable and sad and weak and uncertain mm-hmm. and still be a boy. Right. And that's, I think, what is what we're realizing right now is that, you know, if we don't figure out, not that it's another freaking job of ours, but I'm saying culture in general, if we don't figure out how to raise men that can deal with being human without being violent and narcissistic, mm-hmm. the world's going to end. Yeah. <laughs> it's like of utmost importance because that's what's happening right now. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think just raising, you know, and, and all of this masculinity and femininity, I kind of think is horse shit anyway. I just wish we could just stop trying to raise like brave girls or soft boys and just... Yeah. Take each little human life and be like, okay, how do we make this being as human as possible? Totally. And culture the feminine and and masculine in each person, you know, because I think you can say in the same way that you talk about what women want and how fucking beautiful it is. I think that men and their feminine or who are capable of moving in between can get there as well. And mm-hmm. and being in your feminine, I mean, that's like, that's when you're the vessel and you're receiving and you're taking it all in, including all of those emotions that are hard and mm-hmm. transmuting them, right? Yeah. And, you know, that's the other part of your book that I think is so important. And I know you in some way have transcended a lot of your early suffering, but it is hard. And the work you're still doing is hard, right? Like being human is hard (laughs) and processing emotions and learning and evolving and continually trying to be better and do better in the world is hard. Like the book is also a manifesto about like, sorry, no easy solutions here. You just have to do the fucking work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess I just think that there's a couple kinds of pain, right? I mean, I think that there is... The, I, I became bulimic when I was 10 years old and never really got that figured out. So my bulimia turned into alcoholism and then drug use and the, uh, just all the things. And mm-hmm. then I got sober when I was 25 when I found out I was pregnant with Chase, who will now go, be going to college next year. Lord have mercy. And, you know, I thought for so long, okay, the truth is that I thought until like a couple months ago that I was broken. I even wrote in my first memoir a line that said, I was born broken with an extra dose of sensitivity. And I think it's been raising my daughter, Tish, who is an extremely sensitive soul, and watching how she navigates the world, much like I think I navigated the work as the world as a child, that I figured out, oh my God, she... She is, I would never in a million years consider her broken. She's highly sensitive. She feels the world deeply. She doesn't get over things fast. She's tough to raise. (laughs) I mean, she's my favorite, so I'm not, you know, but she's, she's tough, not easy. I think I just figured out recently, oh, I was never broken at all. I was just a person who was open and sensitive to how life how hard life really is Mm -hmm. and I thought since people weren't talking about pain and sadness I thought there was something wrong with me because I felt so deeply yeah right because in our culture we're so obsessed with happiness and joy like they're great but they're just only you know part of the whole human Mm -hmm. experience and and there's not extra value on that actually much of what I've learned about myself in the world most of my work is done in heartbreak Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where all of my activism comes from. 
all of all of what we've built through Together Rising has been channeling people's heartbreak, mm-hmm. right? Heartbreak, angry, sad, heartbroken women are some of the only forces that have ever changed the world. Yep. Right? So what I think is that I was never born broken. I think that I was born a highly sensitive person, and I didn't know how to deal with that for a long while. But my sensitivity is... Now, as a 43-year-old woman, is the same as it was was when I was 10. But my sensitivity is – it made my life really hard, but it's also what makes me a really good writer. Mm -hmm. Right? Because I can – I, I can feel things and see things and, and hear things that, that, that maybe other people who are too busy with, like, having real jobs <laughs> have time for. My anxiety – okay, my therapist calls it my anxiety. I call it my fire, right, mm-hmm. which led me to have a pretty fearful life early on is, is what makes me a really good activist, mm-hmm. right? It's those things that I thought made me broken were actually – I was born to do this, mm-hmm. Right. And as we all are. Right. None of us is born broken. We're all born with the exact constitution, the exact circumstances, the exact hearts and minds and souls that are necessary to get the specific work done on this earth that we're here for. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the another thing you figure out when you're 40 is like, oh, I see. I am always and have always been exactly who I was supposed to be. And so from here on out, I'm going to stop trying to change myself. And I'm just going to show up as myself and change the world. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, yeah. that's the thing. It's like, if we just spend all of our time working out our perceived or our culturally placed imperfections, you know, women who spend their lives staring at the mirror don't have time to look out at the world. Right. Yeah, or who spend their time sort of focused on being the best possible, you know, I think you call it overparenting and underprotecting our children. But that that story about being at the soccer game and, and someone asking you as you bring the bagels to bring five types of cream cheese and how you are like a five types of cream cheese oh, mother. Sure. And then you write just to ensure everyone has what they want. You know, what if we decided that successful parenting includes working to make sure that all kids have enough, not just that the particular kids assigned to us have everything? What if we used our mothering love less like a laser, burning holes into the children assigned to us, and more like the sun, making sure all kids are warm? It's true. It's like taking that intent, that fervor with which we parent and try to be perfect in our own lives, and it's like we all can collectively lift our heads up mm-hmm. and redirect it toward the world. Mm-hmm. And I know you guys do this. I know you raise, how much have you raised? $22 million mm-hmm. through primarily $25 donations. Yeah. Yeah. To try to help end suffering. Right. Yeah. Um, and, it, and I think when we do that, when we stop burning holes into our children, it's not just that we serve the world, we also serve our children. Mm-hmm. Because you know, like I, I said in that essay, when that woman called me and told me I needed to bring five flavors of cream cheese for, for this kid's breakfast, I, I believe that it comes from a loving place, but it's just that five flavors of cream cheese is not how to make a child feel loved. Five flavors of cream cheese is how to make a child an asshole. Right. Right? <laughs> yes. Like, <There. laughs> in no world does anyone need five che- Like, so I just say that to mean... I do think that if we – we just got that memo. You know, it's not our fault. We got the memo. Every parenting generation and every culture gets a different memo. And ours was – we are the helicopter parents, right? Our memo was don't let anything happen to your child. 
Like, keep life from happening to your child. No pain allowed. No disappointment, no loss, no whatever. And give them everything that you can. Right? And that just is why we're upset and exhausted and why the kids are neurotic. Because kids who, people who are awesome are people who have failed mm-hmm. and figured out how to overcome. Mm-hmm. Right? Are, are, are people who have felt sadness and pain and been allowed to have that sadness and pain so that then they don't want to recreate it for other people. Yeah. Right? It's like allowing children to have their failure and have their disappointment and have their pain so that they can become the adults we dream they'll be. We'll get back to Glennon Doyle in just a second. My work uniform is a jumpsuit or jeans with a sweater or blouse. I'm pretty much in sneakers every day. I try to mix in some color, but I like to keep my clothes relatively simple. And at this point, I really try to only buy staples or investment pieces that I can wear for years to come. Eileen Fisher is one of those designers that makes a good case for investing in classic, well-made clothing. They are a design-driven brand that appreciates clothes through the lens of form, function, and feeling. That means they believe clothes should have a sense of ease and movement, and that women deserve to feel comfortable in every sense. And they also believe that clothing should be made responsibly. They use quality, sustainable materials to create timeless pieces that last season after season. They're committed to doing business for good by taking responsibility for the resources they use and by advocating for the people who make their clothes. To shop simple, sustainable clothing, see their new spring collection at EileenFisher.com. Right now, you can enter code GOOP25 at checkout to receive $25 off when you spend $100 or more. That's EileenFisher.com and use code GOOP25. Back to my chat with Glennon Doyle. You mentioned in the book that young quote, too, that like the, I'll butcher it, Mm. the Biggest tragedy for a child is a parent who hasn't lived their life or Yeah, well, that like came that. when I was trying to decide whether I was going to leave my marriage, mm-hmm. period. Also, to follow this knowing that I had that I was meant to be with Abby. Now, at this point, Abby and I had never been in the room alone together. We had never. I mean, this story is just... Very romantic. It felt very crazy at the time. <laughs> and But sometimes that's how you know you're onto something, right? Because one of the reasons I knew that being following that love with Abby was my untamed self is that it was the first time I had wanted anything beyond what I had been conditioned to want. Mm-hmm. Right? I loved her madly and wildly. And, and that was the first time I had loved someone beyond the people that I had been expected to love. Right. right. Loving her was like, what? And I do believe that that's sometimes when you know that you finally reconnected with the person you were before the world told you who to be is when everyone around you is going, no. And you're going, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And it doesn't make any sense. And it does. And yet, even I had that knowing and I had the conflict of the knowing that this is what was meant for me and the belief I had planted in me early on that a good mother does not break up her family. Right. Right. And then one day I was, um, and I wanted to be a good mother. I want to be a good mother like everybody, more than anything, right? Mm -hmm. Well, so I thought. 
it's just that our definition of good mother is skewed. And if we don't examine what that is, then we're following, we're abandoning ourselves to follow somebody else's definition of good mother that was planted in us, right? Yeah. So I was watching my Tishy get ready for school and she was looking in the mirror and she said, Mommy, can you do my hair like yours? And something about the way she said it is I realized, oh, every time she's looking at me, she's asking, how does a woman, how does a woman live? How does a woman do her hair? How does a woman love? How does a woman be loved? And I realized, oh, I am staying in this marriage for my little girl, but would I want this marriage for my little girl? Mm. And that question changed everything for me because I realized, oh, my God, I have been trained to believe that being a good mother is being a martyr, Mm. that being a good mother is about slowly disappearing, about putting everybody else's needs ahead of yours forever and ever until you disappear and calling that love. And what a burden that is for our children to know that they are the reason that their mother stopped living. Right. And to know that one day if they become mothers, that will also be their fate. Mm-hmm. Because if we hold up to them martyrdom as the model of of love, then that is what they will become because they will want to love as fully as their mothers did. Mm. Right. Yeah. And that is why Carl Jung said that the greatest burden for a child is the unlived life of a parent. Mm. And that's when I realized, oh, I see. So my that is an old belief planted. Well, let's see. Hmm, who could that belief have been planted by that, that, that the ultimate uh, form of love for a woman is to die? <laughs> so like... <laughs> Just repeat, 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 repeat. We'll just keep planting these beliefs that convince women in every arena of their life that what they need to do is disappear. (laughs) Right? Oh, no, no. We need to unearth those root beliefs and and plant our own. Yeah. Right? I do not want to be a martyr mother. I believe that my children will only allow themselves to live as fully as I have allowed myself to live, which means that I will never settle for a life, a relationship, a community, a nation, a world less true and beautiful than the one that I want them to live. Mm. So I decided that's gone for me, that the the model, the fake belief of, of martyrdom, motherhood is gone for me, and I want to be a model, not a martyr. Mm. Yeah, you're right. A woman becomes a responsible parent when she stops being an obedient daughter. Yeah, that was the doozy of the time after I told my mom. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. You can think you're a badass until it's time <laughs> to tell your mom. I'll tell you what. I was on fire until that phone call. Then I was like, shh, my parents have been through so much. <laughs> now I have to tell them that I'm in love with a woman and getting, uh, yeah, yeah. That was interesting. That it was like it was like st- the whole process of deciding with Abby and then telling more. You know, telling myself that was the first thing, mm-hmm. admitting it to myself and claiming it for myself. Then telling Craig. Then telling my children. Then telling my parents. You know. We can all think we're badasses, but in the face of our parents, we become seven again. <laughs> you know, we want to please our parents because that's another root belief that somebody planted in us, that a good daughter is somebody who pleases her parents. Yeah. Right? So when I told my parents, who are my people, my mom was so scared. You know, she was so scared, and she kept saying things to me that I could just feel her fear. She was... She was, oh, what are the, what is the world going to say? How is the world going to treat you? What are the kids' friends going to say? You know, all this fear, fear, fear. And sometimes it's like, it's like in people's worry that the world will bring fear to you, they either create the fear themselves. Oh, yes. I'm right? very familiar. I mean, yes. To the doorstep. 
It's yes. not even existing. And you're worrying it into existence. Exactly. My mother is very guilty of this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, it gets, you're like, life is hard. I don't need to carry your anxiety about, like, your perception of my anxiety. It's very compounding. It's not I very think, helpful. I think their generation must have gotten a worrying equals love memo. Yes. Right? It's not. Worrying is not love. Yeah. Right? But But I think they got that one. So I had to one day, my mom called, and I was just doing that thing where I was just justifying and explaining myself, you know, over and over again. We find ourselves doing that. I was standing under a tree, and my mom called, and she said, I'm going to come visit. And I just said, no, you can't come here. You, my children are not afraid. They don't carry that fear about the world and homophobia the way that your generation does. Like, they don't have that fear. It's not their burden. It's yours. Mm -hmm. And I can't allow you to bring it to them because they love you. And if they see that fear in their eyes, they're going to help you carry it. Right. And so it's my job as a parent not to convince you that I'm okay. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to go about being okay. Right. And when you are ready to come to what we called our island at that point, if you, when you are ready to come to our island with nothing but celebration and joy for our family, we will lower the drawbridge for you, but not one freaking second sooner. Mm. Go deal with your problem, mom. Because you have a problem we don't. Right. And when that problem is worked out, we will welcome you with open arms. And she got it, man. She got it. And that's when I figured out. Yes, a woman becomes a responsible parent when she stops being an obedient daughter. And maybe a woman becomes a woman when she stops being an obedient daughter, right? Because our parents had their chance to build their island to their own specificities, with their non-negotiables, with their culture, with their whatever. Mm -hmm. But it becomes a, it, it, it comes a time when it's our turn. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think we we get confused. We think it's our job to convince everybody on our island that we're OK and we're. But that's not what it is that we're grown ass women. So our job is to only allow people on our island who already accept and celebrate us. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that the mark of an untamed woman is a woman who has stopped explaining herself. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm good. I'm doing my thing. Come enjoy it or stay away. Yeah. But I'm not going to have you come and explain to you why I'm okay and justify myself and say, because that's what we do, right? Yeah, like, no, absolutely. We, it's like the before the moment of uncertainty, we're looking outward for permission, consensus, approval. Then we finally do the thing. Then in the aftermath, we look outward to justify and explain. Yeah. Right. So it blew my mind when I figured out, oh, I don't have to do that before or after. I can just keep doing the next precise thing for myself without asking for permission before and without explaining myself later. So in other words, I can live like a man. (laughs) True. (laughs) It's true. It's joyful. It's freeing. And it it pisses some people off. And that's okay. People will come around or they'll stop coming around. Either way, lovely. Yeah. No, I think that's fair. I think it's that's sort of about life. Like you can't just make accommodations for everyone. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it gets you nowhere. And I would say this, that I think what we fear is that we say, oh, that sounds so well and nice like, to live like that. But that's selfish. 
And that, what about my people? What about mm-hmm. my people? You can't just go around doing what you want and need to do, right? There's mm-hmm. other people. And what I would say is that there's nothing better that I've done that I can do for my children than to keep continuing to refuse to abandon myself. Mm. The The children that my children are right now compared to what they were five years ago when I used to teach them to be afraid of everything by protecting them from life, they're just kids who have stopped holding their breath. Mm. You know, they're kids who have been through the fire and have learned that they are fireproof. So they're not afraid all the time anymore. And they're watching their mother live out her life in truth. And now they feel like they can do that too. Right. Right? My mother, who was so scared before, my mother is like, she's going to be on a monument for like uh, being an LGBTQ activist. She's all over the place. She's like... She's found her cheetah. She's, like, found her wild. And my, I may not have pleased my parents, but I earned their respect. Yeah. It's, I, you know, I think bravery, you know, we're almost out of time, but, like, the, the concept of bravery and the way that you also explore that in the book is so important, too, because I think, like, you talk about it as it's not doing something despite being scared. No, I hate that definition. Yeah. And I think it's important. I think the way that you do it, you you sort of pick it apart is so... Beautiful, because that's really what we're has been inculcated into girls as well. It's like, go jump off a cliff, you know? <laughs> it's <so> terrifying. <laughs> yeah. So somebody wrote to me and said the way that the, I don't I didn't even write this in the book, but somebody wrote to me and said that she was at this family reunion and her daughter was standing on this big rock and everybody was yelling at her. Do it. Jump. Brave. Be brave. Jump. Be brave. And this woman wrote to me. She said, I need you to tell me why that felt wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. I know that's not a good definition of brave, but I don't know why. And I think it's because we have somebody wrote on a meme somewhere that being brave is being afraid and doing it anyway. So mm. we just all accepted that. It, like we passed it around like, OK, that's our new definition of brave, being afraid and doing it anyway, which I think is horseshit because so my I have two little girls, Tish and Emma. I took them to get their ears pierced recently, and Emma, who's just, wow, she's the third kid. I got really tired when she was young. I just kind of, she came out of the birth canal, like, (laughs) handed her an iPad, just said, Godspeed, right? So she's what we call independent, and she's amazing. She's just a firecracker and and all over the place. She's just created herself and she's fantastic. She ran right up to the um, little kiosk and jumped in the chair and said, do it. They shot her up. She got off the chair and Tish saw that whole thing. Tish is much more cautious. And she looked at me and she said, mom, I'm not doing that. I changed my mind. So the lady, the piercer, turned to Tish and said, oh, come on. Be brave like your sister. Mm. Be brave like your sister. And then some of the other ladies were looking at Tish like, oh, come on, be brave, be brave. Your sister's so brave. And what I figured out through that is brave does not mean what we think it, what we've been saying it means. Brave does not mean being afraid and doing it anyway. Because in that particular case, both of those girls were brave. They both looked inside and found their desire. Hmm. Emma wanted to get her ears pierced. She got her damn ears pierced. Tish looked at that and said, I actually don't want that at all. Right? So she said that on the outside. Mm -hmm. Each girl was true to herself, right? Mm -hmm. Being, 
we've we've convinced people that that being brave is doing the scary thing or doing the bold thing or the daring thing and it's not necessarily at all being brave is hearing your inner voice on the inside and speaking it on the outside right in some ways tish was the braver one in that particular case because what tish was um compelled to do from her insides was the thing that was not going to get her the applause from mm-hmm. the outside right because brave it's only can be felt by the person on the on the inside. It cannot be judged by the outside because sometimes you have to do the thing that your inner self is telling you to do, and that thing will be judged wimpy by everybody on the outside. Mm-hmm. I mean, after the infidelity with Craig, I had a, a knowing that I was not supposed to leave. It eventually, that knowing changed as our knowing does, but I knew for a long while my knowing was just like, it's not time, it's not time. And how many people from the outside told me that that right. was it cannot be judged yeah. by the outside. Being brave is being true to yourself. It's the word confidence that I love so much that means with fidelity, mm-hmm. right? Like living your life with fidelity to yourself and abandoning everybody else's applause or boos or expectations so that you never abandon yourself. Right. And that you stay hold to what's right and true. I mean, I, I don't want to let you go without asking you sort of about privilege and your work in sort of trying to help dismantle, particularly white women, help dismantle the racism that we were all raised on. It's mm-hmm. in the water in this country. And you say, and, and essentially it's sort of a call to arms too of like there is discomfort that's required in life. And you say um, she will have to understand that one of the privileges she's letting burn is her emotional comfort. She will have to remind herself that there are worse things than being criticized, like being a coward. Mm-hmm. Which is also, you know, tangentially related to like what bravery might actually be, mm-hmm. which is, I think, as you said, to like ex- sort of examine our hearts and what's in it and then say something, even <laughs> when it might be almost intolerable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the the root beliefs that's been planted in me that I'm trying to get rid of is that that I have to do things perfectly to be worthy of having a voice, mm-hmm. right? That I deserve to be liked by everyone and that that determines my worth, right? And, and, and a lot of the work that I have been trying to do within the race conversation has taught me that, mm-hmm. right? Because what I've figured out with that is that, you know, as white women who are now showing up in various ways. First of all, it's a humbling thing to be showing up right now Mm -hmm. because the reason we're showing up right now is because of the administration. We're starting to feel the effects of oppression Mm -hmm. for the first time, right? To feel it really, like feel it in on the TV and in our education and in our reproductive rights. And, you know, we're starting to feel threatened for the first time, so we're showing up. And that is problematic in itself because it took us being personally affected to start showing up. Mm-hmm. Because actually people have been suffering since the beginning of the country's inception, right? Mm-hmm. And we've been all right. Yep. So I think, you know, when we show up now... We're not going to do it right, and we're not going to do it perfectly. And for a while, I just kept thinking. I kept doing what what I'd been guided to do, not by, like, a higher power. I'm talking about, like, black <laughs> activists in my life, right, who actually are a higher power. <laughs> um, and, you know, getting in trouble for it, like, doing it wrong, saying it wrong, like, oh, my God. 
and, and I kept thinking, oh, I'll just, okay, I'll fix it and I'll do it better next time. And the next time I'll nail it, right? It took me 20 times of showing up and saying something to figure out, oh, I'm not necessarily doing the work wrong. This just is the work. I remember calling my friend Austin and saying, everyone's mad at me again. Like, what, what? And she just said, so? Mm-hmm. Welcome. This is what it is. Yeah. Right? Like, you're giving up your privilege of comfort. Comfort and likability. Mm-hmm. Right? And... um and that's okay. You know, I've recently even, I think one of the important things to remember is that as white people, we have been, you know, we we have been inundated with racism since the moment we were born on this uh, planet. And so we are going to have racism in us. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think it's so, we, we are now at the point where there's no, nobody on earth should be saying, I don't have racism in me. Right. All that says is you are an unconscious person. Mm-hmm. Who, you know, there's we all have racism in us. And, you know, I think one of the one of the things we can do is we can start thinking about it like misogyny. Right. I mean, I speak to huge groups of women all the time. And when I start talking about the misogyny that's planted in us so early that causes all of a lot of our pain and eating disorders and all of the things, the women cry and say, I have it, too. I want to get it out of me. I have misogyny in me. I have I have it in me and it's hurting me and I want it out. But then we start talking about racism and everybody's like. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you're talking about. I have a my best friend is black. Right. <laughs> you so know? I can't be racist. Which is like saying my best friend is thin or something. Right, yeah. So I don't have any eating it. Like it's so okay. so I think the starting place is just a deep humility, one of that we all, every last one of us has racism in us mm-hmm. that we have got to unlearn. And that it is better to show up in appropriate ways and start doing the work and be called even a racist. Mm-hmm. Than it is to not show up out of fear of being called a racism racist and do nothing, right? I used to think, oh my God, being I, being called a racist is the worst thing in the world, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people feel that way, and I don't feel that way anymore. I think being quiet so that nobody calls you out is the worst thing in the world, right? So, you know, I think. One of the or maybe the most important thing we can do for this country right now is to dig deep into the true history of our country mm-hmm. and to really start facing the way that this country was created and still benefits from now. Mm-hmm. And to just, you know, I'm I come from the recovery community. I I was saved by AA, right? Like I understand that when things are broken, what you do is you take a serious moral inventory, mm-hmm. right? Like the only way to heal is to start to face the truth of things, to get it all out on the table, to gather in a circle, right? Just mm-hmm. to make freaking amends, yep. which, you know, which isn't just saying you're sorry. It's making it right in one way or another. And so that's the way I picture it for the nation, right? It's like... We can't move forward unless we all start to to learn and unearth the real, true, yeah. racist as hell history of this country. Yeah. As Brian Stevenson says, you can't have truth without reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And so we That's can't. right. That's right. And we all want revolution. And it's always revelation first. Yeah. Right? You face what is real and then you move on. But there is no peace without truth and justice first. 
right? It's like everybody wants the rising, mm-hmm. right? But that's not how it goes. We don't go from like uh, to rise. It's like first the pain, then the waiting, then the rising, mm-hmm. right? So we're never going to heal as a country unless we can together face the painful history and present of all of us, work together and make amends and then rise together. Yeah, it has to be metabolized. Yes. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Glennon Doyle. For more on Glennon, head to her blog at mamasteri.com. For more on her work with Together Rising, head to togetherrising.org. You can also pre-order her book, Untamed, available March 10th. Now, over to GP for today's AMA. Genuinely interested to know what Gwyneth does in the rare times antibiotics might be required, even if she doesn't read out my question, as I'm sure there are many. I would love to know if there's a way she avoids them altogether, but suspect it's difficult even for her sometimes, asks Christine. Christine, you're right. I I am so thankful that we have antibiotics when we need them. There's absolutely no replacement for them. I had a bit of a lung infection a couple of months ago that I tried for a while to fight with all kinds of potions and alternative modalities and to no avail. I finally had to relent and take them. And then within the first 24 hours, I kicked myself for not taking them a week earlier. Antibiotics are a great modern miracle of medicine, but also, as we know, incredibly damaging to all the good bacteria in your gut. And there's conflicting research about probiotics now. I just interviewed um, Dr. Robin Chutkin, who's an amazing microbiome MD, and she was talking about the lack of efficacy now in replenishing those beneficial bacteria with probiotics, and it might not be as simple as taking them. So we really, you know, if you do have to take my antibiotics, obviously really focus on post the course, eating lots of healthy prebiotics, natural prebiotics, you know, lots of raw vegetables and, and probiotics and yogurt and fermented foods to, to, to replenish the gut. And I would just say, you know, I mean, I have a friend who takes a Z-Pack every time he sneezes and I, I don't recommend that, but also, you know, God bless antibiotics when you need them for sure. Thank you, GP. If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back next week for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.